0: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness.
4: a-L-D-E-M <laughs> This song is good.
5: Welcome to a brand new season of Growing Up With Galdem. Inspired by our book, I Will Not Be Erased, our stories about growing up as people of colour.
2: My name is Nayala Arboyne, and I'm the life editor at Galdem.
5: And I'm Natty Kasimvala, former editor and long-time contributor at
2: Galdem. Galdem is an award-winning media company committed to sharing the perspectives of people of colour from marginalised genders. Each week, we invite a guest to respond to old diary entries, letters or text messages from their younger selves. The point is to nurture important discussions about growing up. You can find Growing Up With Gaudem
5: on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Mallory Blackman has written over 60 books for children and young adults. Author of the internationally renowned series Noughts and Crosses, her work has been adapted for stage and television, is BAFTA award-winning and even led to a collaboration with Jay-Z's Rock Nation. Mallory has received an OBE for her services to children's literature and was also appointed as the Children's Laureate. Most recently, Mallory has written for the Doctor Who series on BBC One, overseen the TV adaptation of Noughts and Crosses starring Stormzy, and the fifth novel in the same series, Crossfire, was published in summer of 2019. Her much-awaited latest novel, Endgame, is due for release in September this year and will conclude the Noughts and Crosses series over 20 years since its inception.
2: It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show with us today. First off, I just want to know how you're feeling about the Noughts and Crosses series coming to an end after 20
4: years. Hi, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, so thank you for inviting me on. And Noughts and Crosses, well, you know, it's really strange. It's kind of like sort of bittersweet because it's been such a huge part of my life for so long that it's kind of hard to say goodbye to it, but it's time, definitely. It was going to be one book, then it was going to be three books. And then with Endgame and the three novellas, it's nine books, so it's a nine book trilogy. So I think, you know, it's about time that it finished. And I'm kind of happy with the way that's it's done. And it kind of feels to me like I've put a line under it and now I can kind of move on. Which is not to say I haven't done other things in the meantime. I mean, it hasn't been just straight writing Noughts and Crosses books, but it did feel time to kind of just draw the story of the three generations of the Hadleys and the McGregors and the Durbridges to a close. it's been such a big part of our lives. It
2: feels kind of surreal.
4: Well, thank you for saying so. I just feel really blessed that I wrote it when I did, that it seems to have kind of carried on, that we got a TV series last year. They're filming the second series at the moment. So it just feels to me like I've just been really lucky with that and I'm really thankful for that. But, you know, all good things must come to an end. We were just saying before we started recording how,
5: you know, so much of what the series, not just the more recent books but also you know the very first novel so much of it still feels so timely and so relevant today when you first started to conceive of like that world that you created did you ever imagine that it would kind of resonate so fully with so many different people I didn't
4: to be honest It was one of those books that I had to write and to be honest I had no idea how it was going to be received I thought I knew I was going to get a kicking in some quarters for actually even daring to broach the topic, but that wasn't going to stop me because I knew it would upset some people. But, you know, it was one of the books where I took a massive risk on it, but I had to because I wouldn't have been able to write anything else until I had uh, written that. And also because it was... Callum's life was spaced on my own and things he goes through at school and the way he feels about things is very much kind of me. That So that made it really painful to write and very personal to write. And in a strange way, it's bizarre because originally I was going to have Callum as black and Seffi as white. And then I thought, but then everyone's expecting that. And I just thought, if I flip it on its head, that's going to kind of play with people's assumptions and presumptions about the characters, but it was very strange kind of writing some of my experiences down as a white boy. Mm. And so, and it meant that it kind of, you know, messed with my head a bit, but in a good way, because it kind of meant I had to be more even handed in telling the story of Callum and Seffi. I wanted them to be come across as real characters and not just kind of one-dimensional or kind of giving the feel that kind of, okay, all the bad stuff's happening to Callum and all the good stuff's happening to Cephi. I wanted it to be a bit kind of more nuanced than that. And so it kind of just forced me to really look at the characters and what they were going through. That first book was kind of cathartic, but my God, it was painful. <laughs> it's incredibly painful. Things like the, the history lesson, that's based on something that really happened to me the train ride where I was accused of stealing you know I was asked by the ticket inspector where did I get my ticket from because I was in first class and he accused me of stealing the ticket that's happened to me when I was 17 and again when I was 40 something that also happened to me where the guy came saw so I was sitting in first class I was the only black person in first class and he was on the platform and he came rushing onto the train and said can I see your ticket please so I handed him my ticket and he looked at me in a ticket, scribbled something on the ticket and got off the train. I said, And when he was getting off, I said, aren't you going to check anybody else's ticket? And he just gave me a look and got off. And I thought, mm-hmm. So, you know, as I said, it's, these things still carry on. These things happen. But I wanted to address them within the book. And I wanted to have it as the story of Callum and Sefi and their lives and the lives of their daughter. But I also wanted to have the society and the way people are treated as an absolute backdrop to what's going on. But more than a backdrop, it's actually affecting their lives in the way that racism does affect the lives of people of colour. And I didn't want to shy away from that. And I think with Endgame, you know, it was very important to me to have the newspaper articles as a reflection of what's going on now. So they were quite interesting because it kind of meant that up until the moment I handed it over, I could write kind of articles based on what was going on currently, which was kind of fun, but it was also kind of, okay. (laughs) You know, and so I could just write an article. But it had to fit in with the story, obviously. And it had to be kind of Toby's very much kind of keeping abreast of what's going on in the news. And so the articles are reflecting what he's reading and what he's trying to keep up to date with. So Amazing. And it is such a striking and simple,
5: like, subversion. That's one of the reasons that it was so powerful. It kind of just forced people to look at what if things were the other way around like would you still be okay with how it plays out and i think it always reminded me of that you know that viral clip of people where it's someone asking like do you think racism is bad or something like that and then they ask like would you today be an african-american or a black person if you could like would you choose to not be white and like no one puts their hands up and it's like okay then mm. if the roles were reversed it wouldn't yeah, be the exactly same i think that's why it's been such a powerful tool for just like critique
4: yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot in that, and I mean, I think also, you know, people call it a dystopian novel, and I think, but well, actually, I don't see it as that. Because if my novel is dystopian, how come the world we're living in is not dystopian? <laughs> yeah, it's not viewed as dystopian. So I actually don't get that, and so I don't call it dystopian. I call it it's an alternate reality story. If anything, I would call it speculative fiction. I certainly don't see it as a dystopian novel.
2: I do feel like the dystopian genre isn't for a lot of people of color, really. If we're already living it.
4: Well, exactly. And I mean, I think it's this thing of, for example, I saw the author whose name escapes me for the moment, Naomi Former, I think it is. But anyway, the one who wrote The Gilded Ones, and she said, please stop calling my work Afrofuturism. And it's like suddenly, if you write a sci-fi novel or a speculative novel as a black author, it's all been lumped into Afrofuturism. And she was saying, no, it's a fantasy story. And the same, I would say, I don't call my story Afro futurism I would just say it's a speculative novel it's speculative fiction and again if you want to call it dystopian then I would say then what we're living in the times we're living in for black people is that dystopian because you can't say it's dystopian one way and not the other it's hyper real I would say
2: (laughs) get your categories right especially like even the plaster like we're only just getting what brown plasters now and you were writing about that how long ago
4: well yeah 20 years ago so you know Exactly. And I mean, I think it's only last year that Tesco's were stocking plasters for people of colour and boots. And that's just a little thing. I mean, it's interesting because it's the little things that people don't see. Or rather, it's the little things that white people or a majority in the society don't see. And it's things like, you know, when I go into Marx and I'm looking for a bra that's my colour and it says nude bras and they're all pink, And I think, okay, keep moving. And the same with tights. And it says flesh tones and they're pink or lipstick. And it's, no, it's certainly not my naked lips colour. So it's kind of ever-present. But I think for the majority in the society, for white people in the society, they wouldn't see it unless it's pointed out to them. And so I think, I hope what my novel did is just kind of flip it and just raise that awareness slightly of kind of what it's like to be a minority and where people assume things entirely based on the colour of your skin. We touched on it a bit
2: before, but I feel like what it means to be black and British is always kind of getting called into question, especially now with everything that happened with the
4: England game.
2: Do you think, how much have things changed since your formative years?
4: You know what? I try to be an optimist. So I do try and think for every two steps forward, we go... Maybe we take a step back and that's what we're doing at the moment. But it feels more than that at the moment. It does feel to me like there's certain quarters who are practising the politics of division, because while everybody is kind of looking at each other as the enemy, we're not looking at the real people who are portraying this and trying to keep us divided. And, you know, it's a tricky one because I do think, you know, the football England game against Italy just really highlighted that. And the fact that the three footballers, while England were getting to the final, they were, you know, oh, it's brilliant. And, you know, England team and we're all in this together. And that veneer was so thin because as soon as England lost, never mind the fact that they are in a final for the first time in 50 years or whatever, as soon as England lost, then it was like, then suddenly we got... All that racist rhetoric and threats on their lives and so forth. And a lot of people expressed shock about that. And I wasn't shocked at all because I said exactly that to my husband. I said, watch what happens if England lose. And I just feel that, unfortunately, race crime is going up in this country. Hate crimes are going up in this country. The rhetoric about immigrants is being constantly played out as sort of anti-immigrant sentiments and so forth by the government. And so I'm not surprised at all. But that said, I do try and be optimistic. I hang on to that, cling to it with my fingernails. But it's very hard at the moment to have that sense of optimism with the way things are going. But that said, Marcus Rashford's mural was defaced, but look how many people then went and posted positive messages on it. And that's what I think we have to keep our eyes on, the fact that it's not enough to say the younger generation are going to know more and so forth and do better because if they grow up within the same kind of structures that taught racism to their parents and their grandparents and they will that's what they will learn. So the only way to counteract that is through books and films and TV that present a kind of alternative message. And that's why it's so important I think that we see more books that feature black people, that we see more films and TV that aren't necessarily about race. I mean, doesn't have to be about race and racism, but let's just see things more kind of Black Panther. And the, what's the name of that film? The Girls' Night Out when they were on a hen night. With, um, Girls' Trip. <laughs> Queen Latifah and so on. And so, I mean, Hidden Figures was more about kind of the fact that they were kind of, they were called black computers. The three women in NASA who were uh, kind of helped to get Americans into space in the first place. But that said, I think we need far more of those. And we're beginning to get them, but we're not at the point, I feel, where there's enough to kind of counter all the other stuff. And For example, like in Texas just this week, they've brought in a rule saying that they can no longer teach in schools that the Ku Klux Klan was a bad thing. So you have to be ever vigilant. And it's things like, you know, you can't teach that white supremacy is a bad thing. They're no longer allowed to teach Martin Luther King's speech, that I have a dream speech. And so on. So it's. I think maybe what happened in the 90s into 2000s is we all got a bit too complacent and we thought the work was being done and now we're in that stage of kind of going backwards on it. So now it feels to me like yeah. rerunning the same race, having to have the same arguments and so forth. But that said, hopefully this time it will stick and we can actually move forward as one rather than having to then in 30 years' time have the same conversations and so on. I think what you said
5: is so right in terms of it being a kind of yin and yang. It's like it's fighting the negative actions like these insane bills and all of the kind of regressive movements that are happening. But at the same time, it's also like positively reinforcing and uplifting When people do good things, like you said, like the Marcus Rashford mural and making sure that that message is also getting out there. And I think that's what I can definitely sometimes fail to do. It's like you could almost get yourself into a cycle of just like reading all the things that are just going to give you a headache after headache instead of like also sharing what moves we have made uh, going forward.
4: Yeah, yeah. I think what it does as well is it plays with your mental health. I mean, there are times now when I just think, Mallory, get off Twitter just get off all social media, yeah. because it, is, yeah. it can Please be quite... just turn the phone off. Well, exactly. It's kind of relentless. It just seems to be this constant drip, drip, drip of bad news and hatred and division, and it does mess with you. And I just kind of think, with all that kind of backdrop, I guess, that I wrote Endgame, and it does make me wonder, if I wrote Endgame, say, I don't know, five years ago, I think it might have been a completely different book. But obviously no writer writes in a vacuum and you write in response to what's going on currently. And I kind of feel like the book is very much a reflection of where I feel we are now, but I also try to do it as a reflection or as a hope for where we can go in the future. But anyway, but you two haven't finished it yet, so I'm not going to say anymore. So, <laughs> But you'll see when you get to the end. <laughs>
5: you know, for a lot of people they do say that writing can kind of be like the therapist's couch. And like you said, it absorbs what's happening around it. So I guess I wondered if there were any important lessons or learnings that you gathered specifically while writing Endgame and kind of living with those characters that you are taking forward.
4: Mm, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, I learned a lot from those characters, especially the younger ones. I think it is about just holding on to that hope because I'm at the age now where I'm very cynical. And I'm very kind of, oh, is this ever going to improve? And OK, this is it. And I mean, I I think the Windrush debacle made me incredibly cynical. The way, you know, that people being deported, that could be my mum, that could be my sister, because they were both born in Barbados. Some people who are even born in this country are being deported if you happen to be born in certain years or you don't have the right documentation or whatever. So there, but for the grace of God, could be me. So I do feel I have become more cynical. But that said, I hope... When I wrote Endgame and the younger characters were kind of holding on to hope because that's all they had, when you have nothing and hope is all you have, you hold on to it so hard. And I think writing that did kind of reignite this kind of hope in me that things will get better. Even if we're in the stage of taking several steps backward at the moment, maybe we have to do that for people to wake up and see what's going on when we're deprived of, you know one civil right after another, like protesting, and you can't protest now if it's going to annoy people or if it's going to be too loud. Well, if it's not loud and it's not annoying somebody, it's not a protest, is it? I mean, that's the whole point. But it's all these little things, all the rights that we took for granted that are slowly being taken away from us, and it's going to get to a stage where either people just say, "Okay, well, there's nothing we can do about it, sink into apathy and that's the way we live, or there is a fundamental shift in people's opinions and they stand up and they do protest in spite of what may happen and make a difference and vote in a government who are going to change all the things that are going on at the moment. So I think writing the books kind of made me feel that, okay, you can't ever let go of hope. No matter how bad things get, you have to hold on to that hope. And I think, you know, and we have made progress. It's not the 1940s and 50s. But at the same time, there are certain parts of society who would love to roll things back to the 50s and even further back. And it's on all of us to make sure that they don't succeed. And I think if anything, writing the book taught me that. But that said, I think the book is very much a reflection of where we are at the moment. Amazing. I think it's
5: time to get into our amazing extract that we've got from you which I believe is written in 1980,
4: was it? Yeah, it was in the 80 or 81. It's kind of, it's something I had to kind of, you know, stirring up dust it's from true. my from my computer. <laughs> <laughs> Cause, Cause it got copied from like the last computer and the computer before that. And I haven't looked at it since. So it is, I mean, it shows it's 1980s, but there you go. Anyway, it's called the past.
3: Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like
1: to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
4: I'm done with that thing. It's over and gone. It's too heavy to carry. Now it's time to move on. I'm done with that thing, for I reap what you sow. So I'll open my hands and just let it go. I'm done with that thing, I'm turning away with no more to prove and nothing to say. I'm done with that thing, no word of a lie, I sin and I spin and I fail, but I try. I'm done with that thing, I thought that was true, but it shifts me and lifts me, so what can I do? I'm done with that thing, but what's this I see? It carries me forward and lets me be me. I'm done with that thing, or maybe not quite. Like a babe in my arms, it fills me with light. I'm done with that thing. I'm done with that. I'm done with. I'm done. And that's a poem called The Past. I don't know if I said that at the beginning, but it was this thing of kind to let go of the past, because at one point in the 80s, I felt maybe the past is just holding me back and it's time to move forward and be forward-thinking. And the past, I felt, was something to live from, not to, or to learn from, rather, not to live in. But at the same time, I think now more than ever that the past is something that has made me strong because I know the sacrifices my mum made and her parents made before and so on. And I think it's this thing of, I just feel like it's like my ancestor's, are all around me whispering in my ear and telling me whenever I'm down to kind of keep going, keep moving forward and don't give up. You know, and the fact that my heritage is Bajan and obviously ultimately African, I feel means that I'm descended from survivors. And that for me means a great deal. And It means that I, you know, I am descended from survivors. I am of survivor stock. And so I have to kind of Remember that and keep that in mind. I wrote that story as something as a, maybe is the past something to let go or is it something to embrace to make you stronger?
2: Yeah, thank you so much for reading that out. I guess that thing can mean a lot of different things to different people. And I know you touched on this being about the past. Was there any specific moments as you were writing that, that you were drawing from?
4: I don't think it was a specific moment. I think it was just a general wanting to, do things that people perhaps were saying that I shouldn't do so I suppose it was in part a reaction to my careers teacher when I said I wanted to go to university telling me that black people didn't go to university so why didn't I be a secretary instead and all she saw was my skin color and her thing was black people don't go to university and as she was the one who was writing university references I knew it was pointless trying to get a university reference from her you know but that said And so I kind of felt, you know, this way that I was viewed as a black teenager obviously had its roots in kind of slavery and racism and so on. And it is that past I felt that was kind of being used to hold me back. So I don't want to dwell on that past. I want to forge forward. I want to do things. And then what happened was I ended up going to poly to do business studies, which I knew was an utter mistake. And I was absolutely right because I hated it. Oh, my God, I hated it so much. Uh, But that said, then I kind of gave up my place because I had to in the first term. And then I applied to Goldsmiths College off my own back to do an English and drama degree. And I got in and I ended up not going because I deferred entry for a year. And then I decided to work and make some money before I went. And I started working at a software house and I got into computers And I got hooked on computers for 10 years, so I gave up my place. But what it taught me was, if someone's in your face saying you can't do something, don't let them stop you. For God's sake, do not let them stop you. Don't stand there arguing with them because it's just a waste of your energy and your time and your effort. Just find a way to go around them. And sometimes the route round them might take slightly longer. In my case, it took a year longer because I had to wait for the following year to apply to college. But by then I had my A-level results, so I knew I could just do it myself. But sometimes you have to just find a way around these things. In life, there's always going to be people telling you that you can't, oh, it's not for you or whatever. And if it's something you really want, you find a way to make it work. You find a way to go around it. So I think that poem was written in response to not just my teacher saying I couldn't, but then me feeling I could. And it was my past and that the way I'd been brought up and the stubbornness and the feeling of, well, yes, I can, because I've had people in my life always telling me, no, you can't. So I kind of feel that I grew up feeling, well, if I want something, I can do it. If I work hard enough, I can do it. And so I think the poem was written in response to that and just saying, you know, the very thing that I thought was holding me back is actually pushing me forward. And I think there's been a lot of cases like that in my life where I, I've gone through some really, really awful, awful times and awful moments, hit rock bottom, but I've learned from them and those moments, I look back now and think those moments have actually made me stronger.
5: Thank you so much for that. So if I did my calculations correctly, I feel like you were in your kind of early 20s at the time of writing. And I think 1980.
4: Oh, yeah, well... I was born in 1962. So in 82, I was 20.
5: Yeah. Yeah. And I just found that so interesting because I do feel like and especially hearing the story that you're where it's come from. It feels like it's got like such a weight to it and such a like the burden of history and the burden of not just your history, but the history of your ancestors, basically, is kind of what's dragging you back and what you're trying to let go of, like revisiting it now and looking back, do you feel like you have the same relationship with your past as you had at that time? Do you feel like it's changed over time in terms of how you kind of look back at, you know, your family history or your race or how other people view your race? Like, has that shifted?
4: Oh, it's absolutely shifted. I mean, it shifted then because I think then I was beginning to realise that actually, you know, my past isn't holding me back at all. My past only holds me back if that's how I view it. You know, and as I say, I mean, I think it was Muhammad Ali who said that the person who's the same at 50 as they were at 20 has just wasted the last 30 years of their life. And so, you know, you should always be changing and moving and growing and embracing and admitting when you're wrong and and kind of holding your position when you feel you're right, but being open to adapting And so I hope that's what I've embraced in my life, the kind of being able to change and grow, basically. And I think that's part of the reason why I wrote Noughts and Crosses in the first place, because it was kind of moving outside of my comfort zone. But I think your comfort zone is called your comfort zone for a reason. It's lovely to exist in there. But I think eventually it stunts your growth. And so sometimes I think you do have to do things that are outside the comfort zone. I mean, that's part of the reason I took on the Children's Laureate role back in 2013, because it was way outside my comfort zone. And I was kind of thinking, oh, God, you know, but then it's kind of it's interviews and articles and blah, blah, blah. And do I really want to do this? But then I thought, but, you know, you're getting a bit too safe and comfortable. So I think it would be good for you. And so, because, you know, I always talk to myself that way. So I kind of feel that, you know, that's part of the reason I took it on. And I think that's part of the reason I wrote Noughts and Crosses and Boys Don't Cry and so on. Because I just wanted to move myself outside of my comfort zone. I think that's a very healthy thing to do. and You know, so part of that thing about the past, I think, is absolutely, at one point, I might have felt it was holding me back. But I soon got over that. And I kind of think the poem was meant to be a reflection of that. And it's, that's why it starts with how I originally felt about my past and then embracing the fact that actually it's moving me forward and, you know, and the past is a constant reminder that I'm a survivor and I can do these things.
2: I think that's really interesting about, you know, coming out of your comfort zone. And I think for many of us who are black writers or who were black bookworms when we were children, watching you do that, has been so inspirational for all of us to realise, you know, I can write, I can do this, I'm going to write this book.
4: Well, thank you for saying so. I hope so. I hope so. If I've done nothing else on this planet, I hope that I've inspired other people to feel that they can write and they have a voice and that there's an audience for their voice and they can and will be heard. You came to my primary
2: school when I was younger and I We'll never forget, probably the first black author I'd ever met in real life. Oh, yeah. really? Did I? Oh, my God. I'm going to cry. What was the school? What was the school? <laughs> um, Ma- what was the school? Macaulay School in Clapham.
4: Oh, OK. Oh, excellent. <laughs> I hope I didn't suck. No, it was great. <laughs> Imagine, you put me off books you know, for life. funny I remember. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> Oh, don't say that, don't say that. But, you know, I, I, that's why I love doing school visits and so on, because especially, you know, when I remember I had one of my books was on television at the time called WYSIWYG about an alien who grants wishes, so you know, it's all very jolly. I remember going into a school and there was a black boy in the audience in front of me, and he kept giving me this really quizzical look, and then he put his hand up and he said, was WYSIWYG on the television and then you wrote the book? And I said, no, I wrote the book and then it was on the television. And he said... So did someone else give you the idea and then you wrote the book? I said, no, it was all my idea and then I wrote the book. It's like seeing the wheels go round in his head. And then he said, oh, so the book is yours? And I said, yeah, and I get to write two episodes of the series each time because we had three series I saw him looking at me and I thought he's looking at me thinking god well she ain't all that so if she can do it I can do it and I thought isn't that brilliant and it's that sort of thing it's like going into schools and for god's sake you know I'm nothing special so you know if I can do it then if you want to be a writer go for it absolutely go for it and don't let
5: anyone tell you otherwise I was also just going to say before you got on the call I'm in my parents house at the moment they've just moved to the country and all of their stuff and arrived maybe a couple months ago we were unpacking all these boxes and I've got all my like childhood books behind me and I was asking the guys if I should move all of my oh, Mallory okay. Blackman collection down into view because <laughs> it's just up there right over there I was like she can't see it on the on the camera but it's here so yeah it's definitely like a very full circle moment and I find it so mad as well that bit that you said of even at that age when you were getting those no's kind of still having that stubbornness to say i'm gonna do it either way even like getting two goldsmiths and having an english and drama offer and then you didn't pursue it right then but it's like at each stage of your life it's almost like you were destined to fall back into literature at some point even though you had these kind of different diversions so i found that really interesting as well
4: yeah i mean i think i don't know if this is true but they do say what's for you doesn't go by you And I kind of feel maybe I was just always destined to be in the world of literature in some manner, shape or form, because originally I wanted to be an English teacher. That's why I wanted to go to college. And that's why, you know, when I told my careers teacher that I wanted to go to university and do an English degree and be an English teacher. And that's when she said, well, black people don't go to university, be a secretary instead. But it was a love of literature and it's a love of reading that made me want to be a teacher just so I could pass that on. I feel like I'm kind of doing what I was sort of destined to do, really, because I'm still in that world and I love it. And I am so lucky because I am doing a job that I absolutely love. I mean, there are parts of it that I could do without, but that's part and parcel of the thing. But my major thing is to make up stories and get paid for it. So, you know, so I cannot complain. I really cannot complain we talked a lot about how you were kind of like a literary role model for us. But I guess I wondered,
5: you know, like growing up before and when you were kind of talking about your love of fiction and stuff like that, did you have any literary role models of your own who kind of felt like inspired you to have that belief that you could also pursue a career in that field?
4: I had a number of literary heroes, actually. I mean, there were a number of authors who... Made me a reader. There were the ones who made me want to be able to write were people like Alice Walker, Butchie Machita, Toni Morrison. Oh my God, I I just bow down to Toni Morrison. She's such an amazing writer, you know. So and I remember that I didn't read any of them when I was at school. They weren't available. They weren't in our library. And when I had my first job and I was in computing, I found a black bookshop in Islington. And I just spent practically every weekend in there. And after my mortgage and food, that's where my money went, just buying up all those books and devouring them, That I all the books I'd missed when I was growing up. And so the first novel I read that featured black characters was The Colour Purple by Alice Walker. And that was when I was 21, 22. And that's a ridiculous age to get to before you see yourself reflected in the books you're reading. That's absolutely ridiculous. And to be absolutely honest, it never occurred to me, even though I was still writing poems and stories for my own amusement at the time, and I had been since I was sort of eight years old. It never occurred to me that I could be a published writer until I started reading books by black authors because I'd never seen it. And it's hard to be it when you don't see it. And so it was only when I started reading those books that I thought, oh, maybe I could do something like this. Maybe I could get my stuff published, which is why I gave up my job. I started writing for publication when I was 25 and finally got published when I was 28. And that was kind of eight or ten books later and over 82 rejection letters later that a publisher finally said yes. So it was a hard, hard slog. But I'd go to work during the day and then I would just come home and I would right, 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 write um, until about 1, 2 o'clock in the morning and then go back to work and write in the evenings. And I did that and I was determined I was going to get something published. And so, but that would never have happened if I hadn't read The Colour Purple and Sula and The Bluest Eye and The Joys of Motherhood and For Coloured Girls and all those other books that I absolutely devoured. And it wasn't just the fiction, it was also the non-fiction I devoured People like Matthew Henson, who him and Robert Peary were the first two to get to the North Pole, for example. But in the history books, they only ever mentioned Robert Peary. They never mentioned Matthew Henson because he was black and so on. So it was kind of reading all these nonfiction books about black scientists and pioneers and achievers that really opened my eyes. And that's why I think representation is so important. And that's why I do feel that, you know, there should be more inclusion within the national curriculum, as is certainly the English national curriculum, as far as the books that we're asking our children to read are concerned. This is something I've been banging on about for the last 30 years since I was a published author. There's still this view in some quarters that if a book has got a black person on it, it's only for black people, which is so much Bollocks, excuse my French. But, you know, it is so much nonsense. And I just think, you know, the point is, nobody says, I don't know, that a book by, you know, giant Harris or whoever or, you know, Shakespeare and so forth are only for white people. So where did this view come from that if it's got a black child on the cover, then it's only for black children? I'm writing for all children. I'm writing for everybody. And so, you know, I just think it's so limiting when people say, oh, but, you know, if it's got a black person on it, then it's only for black children or whatever. No, it's not. And I kind of feel that adults who say that in particular are just showing their own bias. If you're British, are you saying you'll never read a book by an American or someone who you know is French in translation or whatever? Because then they they don't reflect your background back to you. And this idea, I've been in places where they say, "Oh, the population around here isn't very multicultural." And that's why we don't stock your books or we don't have too many of your books or whatever. And I kind of think, yeah, how many hobbits do you have around here? But you still got Lord of the Rings, you know, and so on. So I don't think that argument stacks up either. So I kind of think it's just about changing people's minds, mate, sometimes one person at a time. But we have to keep moving, keep on keeping on. 100%. We literally just had this
5: conversation with someone else we had on the show called Leah Johnson, who's a... YA writer, and she was talking about these unbelievable statistics on how few books have black girls um, within the YA sphere, have black girls as the main leads, and then of those books, like one of them had a queer black girl. And I was saying the exact same thing. I said, mm. there's more representation for dragons than there are for black women <laughs> in the
4: white <laughs> department. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, isn't that ridiculous? I mean, I, but we've got Ace of Spades, which is amazing. that recently yes. came out. And The Upper World by Fermi for the Duke, they're going to be published in August. And that's an, another amazing book. So, you know what? Before, I could probably read all the YA books by black authors that came out. I could probably read them in a fortnight because there were so few. And now there are so many that I can't keep up with all of them. And it's wonderful. I mean, it's not wonderful because I'd love to read them all. But there's so many more than there used to be that it's hard to keep up. But that said, there's still room for an awful lot more. And I also think, because when I first started and people were saying, yeah, but do we really need books for black children in this country because they can read American books by authors of colour? And I'd say, well, the the black British experience is not the same as the African-American experience. And I remember having that conversation quite a few times. And basically, I just wanted to... I guess, first and foremost, I was writing for the child and the teenager in myself and all the books I'd love to have read when I was a child and a teenager that I didn't get to read. So... I am one of these people, I'm, I kind of have a little bit of a whinge and then I think, well, go and do something about it. And it was a dearth of books featuring black children that made me think, OK, let me see if I can do something about that.
2: Yeah, it's wonderful to see all the black authors that have started walking in your footsteps. It's just more books for us, which oh. is great.
4: <laughs> That's kind of you to say so. I mean, it's just so wonderful to see because I just think all these books coming out now and so on and I kind of feel... About time, about time, and let's have more, and let's have some more, and let's have some more, and let's have some more that are marketed to everybody because, you know, if we want a really truly inclusive world where people cannot divide us, I think part of the reason that this attempt to divide us works is because there's ignorance about how other cultures live and so on. It's like Courtier Newland posted something saying that he sent his book off and he saw the reader's comment, which I don't think they meant to send him, but they said that the book was unbelievable because it had a black family eating spaghetti bolognese. Now, you know, I just kind of... I heard about of, that. I, you know, it's, it's that sort of thing that makes me think, uh, yeah, isn't it ridiculous? What and I earth? kind of think, oh, God. And so that's why we need our books to be more diverse and we need more inclusion in terms of films and TV and books and so on, just to kind of counteract the nonsense assumptions that some people yeah. might have. And black people working in the companies that
5: choose which books get published too, I think as well, because clearly
4: that person has never met a black person in their life. <laughs> <laughs> it was so obvious. And I think that there is the argument about should white authors be writing black characters from my own point of view switching it around I have written white characters again in noughts and crosses and so on so I'm not saying that you should only kind of stay in your lane or whatever on that front but I do think if you are going to write about someone outside of your own culture and your own heritage get it right do your research and I've read too many books I feel where I felt that the author obviously had not met a single person from the background that they were writing about because the assumptions and things they got wrong. I guess it's the Jamie Oliver rice and peas syndrome because when I remember watching (laughs) him make rice and peas and he made rice with garden peas and I thought, now, okay, I don't know any black person who makes rice and peas with garden peas. So where did you get this recipe from? But he's calling it kind of Caribbean rice and peas. But the thing is, just do your research. If you're going to do that, Try and get it right. I mean, I'm not saying I'm perfect and I get everything right. I don't. But if you get something wrong, hold your hand up to it. But at the same time, don't assume that you know something because of your perspective on something yes. is going to be everybody's perspective on something. And that's the problem. Absolutely. Just before Naiela asked this
5: last question, I just had one, one more comment. I just finished reading The Other Black Girl and it just felt like they talk about the exact same issues that we're talking about today. I don't know if either of you guys have read it.
4: But it's no, I've got it. It's by my bedside, um, but I haven't read it yet. I just
5: finished it. It's it's so good and and so like imaginative. I found, but what the character in that works in publishing, and she's a young black girl, and she goes through that exact same issue with an author. This isn't a spoiler for anyone listening, uh, but she goes through that same issue with an author who's this like kind of white character who wants to write about the opioid epidemic, and he writes this awful black like characteristic that's just like all of the stereotypes you can imagine for how. You know, a white person might see a black person who's addicted to drugs or whatever. um, And she kind of has to battle with like the internal politics of even being the person to challenge that trope. And like as an assistant whose book is being edited by a white person who thinks it's like groundbreaking and everyone in the office is like, oh, my God, isn't this the best thing that's ever been written? And so, yeah, it just reminded me of what you were saying.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's still work to do and there's still ways to go, but I'm hopeful that we'll get there. I mean, things do change and sometimes it's very slowly and sometimes we take those steps backwards. But I think I have to believe that the overall direction is forward. So I'll hold on to that. Thank you.
2: And I guess just to kind of bring it back to your poem, what advice would you have for your younger self?
4: Oh, gosh. First and foremost, stop worrying about what people might think and feel about what you're doing. Stop letting that hold you back. I just feel I kind of wasted so much time worrying about how others were going to take what I was doing and so on. And I just say, just let go of this fear you have of just being yourself, you know, and live your life for God's sake. (laughs) Get out of your own way and live your life. And it took me far too long, far, far too long to just learn that simple message. So if I had a message for my teenage self or myself, even in my 20s, It would definitely be that. Just live your life and stop worrying about what other people might feel about it. As long as you can look at yourself in the mirror without wincing, that's all you need care about. Yeah, I think that's
5: amazing advice. And our last question for the podcast is, what do you think
4: your younger self would think of where you are today? God, that's a really good question. I think the younger Laurie would probably look at me and think... I love your job, I can't wait to do that. But she'd also say, lay off the ice cream, because how did you get that big? <laughs> so I think, you know, but also I used to be so super fit and so on, and it's one of these things, as soon as I started writing, and, you know, and it was backside applied to the chair for eight hours a day, thinking I could still eat the same and whatever. But So I think it would be just keep up with the health stuff, because, you know, you can't write if you're not healthy. So keep up with the health stuff. But I think the teenage me would say, oh gosh, I love the career and I can't wait to do that. So yeah, definitely that. But I think she would say, it's not so much about size, it's about fitness. And I kind of feel now I'm kind of trying to get back into that and trying to get fitter and so forth. But I do feel I should never have let it lapse in the first place. I would say to my younger self, make sure you keep up with all the kind of the running and so forth and whatever and going to the gym. And she would say to me, well, I really like what you're doing, so I'm glad you're a writer because the younger me used to love writing but never thought she could be a published writer. So I think that's what she'd say.
5: That's incredible. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a delight.
2: (laughs) Uh, It's been my pleasure. Yeah, it was great to have such, you know, a living legend on the show. And I feel like if you have been a book nerd as a child, Mallory Blackman. That was wild. It was so great to speak to her.
5: Honestly, yeah. She was... And she was so lovely and, like, open. I think I really liked what she was saying about, you know, like, her book not being Afrofuturism or dystopian, but just actually being, like, kind of hyper-real. Now I think about it, I'm like, I do think her book is dystopian because I also do think that the world is dystopian. So it's, like... I guess it depends which way you look at it. But, yeah, I'm really excited to finish that book and just
2: so chuffed to have met her. Honestly, I can't believe it's been, like, over 20 years now. I feel like that was one of the first books I ever read that was honest to me about racism as a child and didn't try and shy away from it. Yeah, and I feel like so many other children had that experience as well through her book. Yeah, I
5: think you're right. Like, I think it's probably the first political book I ever read. When I think about like the kind of authors I was into, other than like Tracy Beaker. I think you're right though. I think like Noughts and Crosses is probably the first political, like inherently political book that, that I ever read, which is kind of mad to think of all these years later. And like I said, like something so simple, just like flipping the race of the people in the book can have such like, it's such potent social commentary. because mm. so it's like, if you're not okay with this, then you shouldn't be okay with the way the world is today.
4: Exactly.
2: It was also great to hear her read a poem. I feel like she's so known for like her prose
4: mm. and her novels,
2: but I didn't even know she did poetry. So that was really cool. I know, and she
5: read it so well. I'm like dying for like a Mallory Blackman poetry book audiobook now.
2: Yes, I want to do a slow click like
5: <laughs> in a smoky jazzy bar. This has been an II Studios production.
2: Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. You can sign up to become a member at gal-dem.com for access to exclusive discounts with our favourite brands and partners, early access to tickets for Galdem events, an advanced copy of our annual print issue and so much more.
5: Make sure you're following us on all major social media at goudemzine for the latest independent news and culture. Or visit our online website, which is
2: gal-dem.com. Don't forget, if you love this episode of Growing Up with Gowderm, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We'll catch you on the next episode.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.